Ladies and gentlemen, uh, good afternoon and uh, welcome to the University of Sydney. Um, I'm Mark Scott. I'm Vice-Chancellor and uh, President here of the University and uh, you'll be pleased to know I'm going to speak very, very briefly because we have real experts in the room and real matters of public importance that we, uh, we want to hear and we want to discuss and so I want to vacate the stage to them. Can I begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land in which we meet? We meet on the land of the Gadigal people and the University of Sydney is Australia's oldest university. We've stood here for more than 170 years. We're moving on to completing two centuries here. But uh, it's important for us to always remember that the traditional owners of this land were engaged in teaching and learning and discovery for hundreds of centuries. So, uh, so um, we stand on all that... Um, came before, we recognise that we are part of a community that's been teaching and learning and discovering here for hundreds of centuries. And I want to pay my respect to the Gadigal people and particularly their elders who are past and present. Thanks to uh, Michael Green and the US uh, Study Centre and the National Endowment for Democracy for uh, inviting me along to be able to listen to the discussion this afternoon. It strikes me that what's happening here today is very much central to what we want to do um, at the university. We value expertise. We value at the university those who have studied and thought deeply and researched deeply and come to uh, an understanding uh, of the matters that are most important to us. And we know that tonight we have preeminent thought leaders in government and policy making and advocacy and academia who are joining us from around the world for this discussion. We value your expertise. We also greatly value diversity uh, at the university. Diversity within our community, but also diversity of opinion and insight, because it's in that rigorous exchange of ideas and understanding that we all move to a point of better knowledge and greater insight. And one of the things that we aspire to here at the university, we don't always achieve it, is to celebrate disagreement, but a recognition that we need to learn and be able to disagree well uh, together. Sometimes, I think, in our robust exchanges with students or unions from time to time, we don't always disagree well, but to create a culture where we listen respectfully, we engage with each other, and we learn well is central to what we're trying to do here um, uh, at the University of Sydney. We're delighted in our now long-standing partnership uh, with the US Studies Centre, and the expertise that the US Study Centre brings to our campus, not just our researchers, but the hundreds of students who enrol in programs run by the US Study Centre uh, every year. And I think particularly since Mike has uh, joined us and the juxtaposition of Mike joining us and the extraordinary focus that's now uh, emerging over the Indo-Pacific area and Mike's background and expertise, we are really valuing the opportunity for the conversations that are coming to bear uh, uh, for us. I think as a university we're thinking through how do we meaningfully engage with peoples and issues across our region. It's a key question that many of our researchers are engaged with and what the institution itself uh, is grappling with. And uh, as, um, as an institution, as Australia's oldest university, we want to be uh, at the forefront of not just engaging debate but in coming up with solutions to the most pressing challenges that we face as a society here in Australia as we face in the region and we face around the world. And it's deep engagement with each other that is the true driver of the emergence of new strategies and new insights. 
So it's wonderful to be able to welcome you uh, to the University of Sydney. Uh, thank you for joining us here today, and I'm now going to hand over to Mike, who will take the discussion forward. Mike. Thanks very much, Mark, and thanks in particular for your leadership and support for the U.S. Studies Center. Um, the U.S. Studies Center was established in 2006 with the aim of um, educating um, Australians uh, about the United States, uh, but also working uh, on issues that confront the United States, Australia, and our friends and partners in the region. Um, and it's in that um, context that we were really delighted to host um, the uh, third meeting of the Sunnylands Initiative. And I'll briefly describe the initiative for you and then introduce our keynote speaker, and then we'll have a panel of those who participated in the initiative. We started this in 2019. Um, uh, it was originally a partnership between the National Endowment for Democracy, which is with us today, and a co-sponsor, um, the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, where I was vice president, the Sunnylands Foundation, which runs the Anaheim, beautiful Anaheim State in uh, California, and we, we thought it would be appropriate to bring together a, a diverse, uh, authoritative group of thought leaders from the Indo-Pacific, um, the leaders of the democracy NGOs in the United States, um, to explore uh, what um, democracy, governance, women's empowerment, and gender equity, what these values mean in an Indo-Pacific context, and what we can do together to reinforce more uh, just, resilient, and effective societies with strong, accountable uh, forms of government and empowerment for the people. Um, and we did this in part because um, in our academic research, a number of us saw in polling that across the Indo-Pacific, um, when citizens or when thought leaders are asked, um, what are the most important norms, what topped the list were things like um, uh, human rights, free and fair elections in much of the region. Um, and we wanted to explore this because it was very, very important for Washington to understand, but for the whole world to understand, that these are not American values, they're not Australian values, they're universal values, and they're being embraced um, across the region. Um, but we also wanted to learn more about and learn from um, change agents, actors within the region, who in their own ways, in their own uh, political systems, in their own sub-regional context, we're really taking new initiatives um, to advance democratic governance. And these are the kinds of things that we might not have seen four or five years ago, but we're really seeing today. So, for example, the Republic of Korea just co-hosted this summit for democracy, will be the host this year, has pledged $100 million over three years to support democratic governance, anti-corruption. Um, Japan, in its new national security strategy, has put universal values as a core mission of the state and is now preparing to um, unveil a new um, development charter that will emphasize this issue more. Indonesia, for some time, has had the Bali Democracy Forum, founded by former Foreign Minister Marty Natalagawa, who's with us today. Um, within the Pacific Islands Forum, the Bigotau Declaration of 2000 set forth the principle that member states would work together to monitor elections to build democracy. These, none of these are American initiatives. Um, they all happen spontaneously within the region, and we wanted to really spotlight them and think about how we can align our efforts, learn from each other, including in the United States how we can learn, because our democracy is not uh, exactly the perfect model. The Founding Fathers promised to form a more perfect union, not to deliver a perfect union, and it's a work in progress in the United States as well. And even in Australia, 
Um, we note that uh, uh, Claire O'Neill, the Home Affairs Minister, has launched a democracy task force because even in Australia, um, there are concerns about polarization, um, uh, disinformation. So this is something we all share, something where we all struggle, and something where we can all learn from each other. And we had 25 participants from across the region uh, meet over the last two days. Um, I won't go through every country, but Japan, Korea, Timor-Leste, Samoa, Papua New Guinea, um, the Philippines, Indonesia, uh, India, and so forth. We've, we've, we've drafted a joint statement, a charter we will put out tomorrow. We'll preview it a bit tonight. Um, and we had a really um, robust and encouraging discussion about what we can all do to support uh, uh, citizens who want accountable government um, and stronger states that result from that. But we thought to open up the evening, it would be really important to remind everyone what we're talking about. And so we're absolutely delighted, de delighted that my friend Sean Trinell, Professor Sean Trinell, is going to open the proceeding with an initial keynote address and discussion about his own experience. Um, as many of you will know, Sean is a longtime scholar of Burma's economy. Um, he wrote the most authoritative histories of uh, financial policy and institutions in, 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 in the, which I've read <laughs> in, in, in Burma, Myanmar. Um, and he had dropped everything and went uh, uh, to uh, Naypyidaw to help Aung San Suu Kyi design a development country that would be inclusive and um, deliver results uh, for the 50-plus million people in that country. But then when the coup happened, he was arrested and spent 21 months in, in harsh uh, imprisonment. So Sean uh, is going to kick off uh, our discussion and remind us of what's possible, but also what happens when you snuff out freedom, which is ultimately what we're talking about. So I'll invite Sean up here um, for some initial uh, remarks, and then um, I'll uh, ask a question or two, let you ask a question, and then we'll turn to our panel of experts. Sean, thank you. Welcome, and uh, looking forward to your opening thoughts, and then I may have a few follow-up questions for you. Great. Thank you, Mike, um, who I first met over 20 years ago. We've been in this fight for a long time. Uh, it's great to see so many friends in this particular audience too, by the way. Um, I should um, start by saying that um, the whole time that I was in Myanmar, in the prison, there was one country that I knew I needed in my corner. There was one country that was in my corner, and that's the United States of America. So it's really a pleasure just to say to all my American friends, a big thank you uh, for that, because, yeah, I knew you guys were there, and you were. Um, so that, that's the first thing to say. Um, second thing, as Mike uh, said, uh, I was there, but more importantly, the Myanmar Economic Reform Team were there to create the economic circumstances for democracy. Democracy was the end objective, but it was also, as something I'll read in a moment, it was part of the process that we thought we'd be able to get a prosperous economy. So democracy was actually front and centre. Now, I'm sure, as everyone here knows, there were all sorts of things went wrong in Myanmar well before the coup, uh, and I'll talk a little bit about that as well. But that was the central objective all along, was to use democracy uh, in the ways we could to bring about greater freedom and human rights and so on. And I just on that, I just wanted to quote something, because just before the coup, We'd come up with a, a new plan, which was, wasn't a five-year plan or anything like that, but it was a plan to, to reboot the reforms and deal with some of the problems that had taken place and get the country back on track. Uh, but I just wanted to read something that the big 
uh, affirmation of democracy, if you like, that came out of the plan. It was, it was called the Myanmar Economic Resilience and Reform Plan, but this is what it said on the whole issue of democracy, uh, which was that it was foundational to all uh, and based on recognition of the economic dividends yielding from being a democracy, an end in itself and as such needing no other justification. It is the case that being a democracy brings the application to Myanmar of the most powerful engine of economic growth known to human history. A system based on individual rights and freedoms, democracy and its accompanying institutions aligns incentives, allows spontaneous solutions to problems, promotes technological advancement and the delivery of public services according to demand uh, and expands choice and opportunity. In short, democracy and a focus on individual rights and the rule of law are simultaneously the ends of policy and the vehicles through which Myanmar may escape poverty and achieve the prosperity our people deserve. So that, that was the clarion call, if you like, of this, of this plan that was ready for the reboot. Um, it was literally finished on Sunday the 31st of January 2021. Dorsu, Aung San Suu Kyi had agreed with it. We were due to discuss it in Napidor the Thursday and of course the coup took place on the Monday and, and that plan disappeared. But, but that was very much the aspiration and it was more than just a commitment, more than just idealism. It was about, based on the experience. We knew all the things that had gone wrong, uh, but it was, you know, so it was meant to be practical and, and achievable. Um, the other thing I suppose just to highlight too, uh, and again of sort of relevance to US history and so on, we, we took as one of our uh, sort of guiding statements something that Alexander Hamilton, of course, is the, uh, you know, the uh, very much the most popular founding father at the moment, um, <laughs> that tis by introducing order into our finances, not by gaining battles that we are finally to gain our object. Um, I, I had the Ron Chernow biography of Alexander Hamilton with me, mm. and I got all the way around the Myanmar mm. uh, Ministry of Finance. I gave it to Dorsu in the prison. She ended up reading it there. Uh, and um, anyway, and, and that's where it is. My copy is in in same prison now. But but the whole thing of of Hamilton was uh, yeah very much foundational to to what that plan was about, and you know very mo very much was a. a a thought of how to achieve democracy. So very much a focus on financing, uh, elimination of things like money printing, which I notice two-thirds of government spending at the moment in Myanmar just comes from the printing presses right now. So all that, unfortunately, has been swept away. But that's the sort of thing we've committed to. We're committed to things like trying to fix up these crony banks that Myanmar, unfortunately, is blessed with. They're, they're basically criminal enterprises as much as anything else. Um, and in the process, though, and, and this was an early warning sign, um, in the process there was a lot of pushback from these banks. And I remember getting a conversation with one of the heads of the banks and he said, Sean, um, if we go down, you'll all go down with us. And, you know, it turned out that actually we fell before they did. Uh, did. But anyway, I'm sure they're, they're not long for the world. But um, that, that's the sort of opposition that we ran into. Um, in terms of lessons, I was talking to Jared a couple of days ago just about some of the lessons of democracy in Asia from Myanmar, and we were talking about the idea of overreach versus underreach. You know, do you try and push for democracy uh, quickly to a greater or less extent, etc.? And it's interesting because I think the consensus is that it might have been a bit of overreach, and the military pushed back, and that's what caused the coup. 
My assessment is exactly the opposite. Actually, I think it was underreach. I think what, in retrospect, although we sort of knew it at the time, what needed to happen was when the new leadership, the new democracy came in back in 2016, there was a huge amount of political capital. And I think at that moment, there could have been an opportunity to try and clean out some of the upper echelons of the military, the public service and so on. Difficult call, and it was hard even then, I know, and a lot of opposition, but in retrospect, I think that might have been a, a, a better thing. But anyway, certainly up to discussion, you know, and history's verdict, I guess. Um, finally thing, just to echo what Mike said uh, about, you know, what we're here for, um, the most committed Democrats are sitting in insane prison and other prisons in Myanmar right now. They're still all full on. Um, the people who I was with, um, Dorong Sang Suu Kyi, obviously, uh, but all the ministers, deputy ministers, all the economic reformers, absolutely committed, not stepping back a second, absolutely convinced that they're going to have to come back and clean up the mess, but their commitment to democracy, no second guesses or anything like that, no backsliding, deeply committed. So with them as an inspiration, uh, I'll uh, bring my, my words to an end. Sean, excellent. Thank you. Um, and you'll hear shortly a, a bit more about our discussions where participants from Japan, Korea, and the region um, uh, are preparing uh, an initiative uh, for democratic actors at risk so that other regional countries can help people who are fleeing repression because they are speaking out for democracy. Um, let me ask you, because you're an economist, uh, quickly about that. So your clear theory of the case was that democratic norms, accountable government, transparency, anti-corruption would help the uh, economy grow. Yep. But one of the debates in the Journal of Democracy and among the experts is, do you need a middle class to have a democracy? Right. Korea, uh, Taiwan, uh, Philippines, middle class democracy. Um, uh, on the other hand, we have um, uh, a, a participant um, from uh, Timor-Leste, uh, not even a lower middle income country, yeah. and yet probably the most significant democratic democratic gains in the region this last year. So what's your take on the chicken and egg problem of yeah. democracy and economic development? Yeah. And, and of course, looming over all of this is the example of China, which has a middle class the size of America yeah. um, and no democracy or relatively little. Yeah. So what's your take on that link? Yeah, it's interesting. Right? I, I used to always default to what I thought was the fundamental issue, which was the people of Myanmar wanted democracy. They actually voted for it. So w whether it was good for the economy or not is actually a secondary issue. I think it is better, but they wanted it. And so given that, 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 that was the sort of thing that we held to. Um, and also I thought, you know, it, it may be that, yeah, as you say, the, the old argument about the middle class and all that, there wasn't time. You know, I mean, we could wait for Myanmar to get a middle class, but it's going to be 50 years. And so, and of course, when we talk about no democracy in Burma, we're talking about atrocities, you know, people being burned to death and all the rest of it. Like, it's, it's not the sort of authoritarian development model. It's a model that is destructive, you know, it doesn't develop anything. Um, so, yeah, so given all of that, uh, our thought was, okay, look, there, there are arguments around the issue, but we want democracy now. Let's let's go for it. There are dividends from it. There's some downsides possibly as well, but yeah, people will live with that. that was I very much appreciate that you answered my very academic question with the right answer, which is, in a way, it doesn't matter if people want right. democracy. Right. That's that's yeah. the foundational yeah. point. Yeah. Um, we met over the last two days and 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 had quite a bit of discussion about what um, other democracies in the region can do to support, um, you know, democratic actors at risk. Um, 
I'm not sure how much time you had to reflect on this when you were in insane prison, but um, you did mention that you had the United States and there was one that you, you had and there was one country yeah. you needed. I'm wondering yeah. if you'll unpack that for the audience, yeah. which country that, that was. But what was your sense about um, regional responses? Do you think um, a more unified regional response or better use of ASEAN or, 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 or mechanisms like that might have made a difference for you and Dalian Suchi and the others uh, uh, in prison? Yeah, so dealing with the second part first, I would have liked to have thought that, but the fact is, unfortunately, we're dealing with a regime at the moment that doesn't care. Doesn't care. You know, I mean, the most extraordinary thing is the way that... Uh, so, you know, there are arguments about ASEAN's response and this five-point plan and how strong it is and all that. But in the end, the regime just rejected it in any case. And to me, the, the real giveaway was the way... And it relates to me directly... Um, People here might be aware, at one point, uh, Hun Sen, the Prime Minister of Cambodia, put in a very strong thing for my release and, in fact, declared that he got my release. He, he yeah. picked up you know, know a that. bit of a wrong message and all that. And he was humiliated mm. by the Myanmar regime. I mean, they you know, not only didn't release me, but, but sort of um, yeah, allowed him to sort of swing in the breeze with this. Um, and so that, that, to me, was very, very revealing. And no matter what the countries have done in the region... At the moment, they are just not listening. So, um, I mean, I, but I, I don't want that to be a council of despair because I think there are many things that countries in the region can do. Uh, and also, I suppose, back to your original question, uh, or first question about, you know, what, uh, I guess about the imperfections of what democracy might look like in a country like Myanmar, which is just to say that there are other experiences around the region that I think can be really helpful. Um, we always thought, actually, that... The model in politically was Indonesia. That, 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 that was very a strong belief. Uh, that, and the way that particularly the military had been sort of just gradually pushed to the margins on, on the economy and some other things. Uh, we also had, in terms of economic reform, we even had countries like Vietnam as a bit of a model in that it wasn't a democracy, but it was a, a rational decision-making process with uh, yeah, a sort of somewhat degree of accountability. But, yeah, but, but anyway, yeah, so very much the, the region was looked at. Um, the, the indispensable country, though, Mike, was actually the US. They're the country I knew I needed. Um, and I remember my wife telling me one day that she'd got some calls from Washington and she mentioned some of the names of the people calling. And I said, uh, I remember just thinking, oh, great, this is, <laughs> this is good. Uh, but then again, even, even that uh, was not something the regime was going to listen to. Hard case. I spent a lot of my career on North Korea, right. including dialogues with North Korea and the human rights, yes. and they didn't care. But we did sense that they cared when there was real unity among the international community. Right. When they started to see that, it made them nervous, yeah. and you had a little more traction. But with yeah. these really hard cases, it, 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 um, it's pretty frustrating. Yeah. Um, I'd like to open it for some questions from the audience, including our Sunnylands participants for Professor Tennell, if you have them. Um, so, uh, yes, ma'am, right here. Uh, we have a mic, if you could give just one second. Okay, do we need a mic? I think we do, because we're, we're going to broadcast this. Yeah. We want the, we want the, uh, we want Napadal to hear what you say. <laughs> Testing. Hi, Susan Banky from the University of Sydney. Sean, it's so wonderful to see you. Welcome back. Um, I wanted to ask about something that's been written about a little bit, but I haven't seen so much, and I would love to hear where there were murmurings that you would have heard that anyone else, more than anyone else I know about the promise of defectors. 
when a defector would make an announcement, was there kind of a buzz about that? Was there some kind of a hope that maybe this could be the thing to break the back? We know that there weren't that many. We know that there were very few that even came up to the high level. And as far as I know, there was only one woman. So not a huge thing. But I, I'm curious about that from kind of the perspective of attitudinal shifts, the giving of hope or morale or any other thoughts you have. Thanks. Yeah, it was. Um, it, it did give everyone a lift, and so we would hear about things like that. Um, but eventually, we sort of grew hardened to that. Um, the rumours around the prison we always called the BBC Wall Service, um, and we grew greatly to distrust the Wall Service um, because we're always hearing things like this. And and uh, one of the things I discovered, which you know I'd never had any reason to know before, was the incredible um, way in which wishful thinking powers just about all of your thoughts. And so the, the merest scintilla of information was interpreted that the regime is going down, this is it, <laughs> there's defections, there's whatever. Uh, and unfortunately, nine times out of ten, it turned out not to be true. Uh, but they are powerful, and the defections were definitely part of that. Uh, yes, over on that side. Uh, thank you, Mr. Turner, for that excellent speech. Um, I appreciate this may not necessarily be your area of expertise, but just wanted to get your thoughts on how um, ASEAN will handle the issue of the Myanmarese junta. Uh, at the moment, it seems like they've been cast out. But do you foresee a time in the future Well, you know, obviously the Myanmarese junta in the past uh, was a member of ASEAN. They didn't have a problem then. Do you foresee a point in the future ASEAN will just accept this as the status quo and bring them back into the fold, so to speak. Yeah. Thank you. So I hope not. And, and I think there's a particular danger coming up because there's these ridiculous elections coming up soon and, and they'll be farcical beyond belief. Um, uh, and, uh, but what worries me a little bit is that some countries might use the opportunity to sort of normalise relations where you know the relations are not normal in any way. So I do worry about that a lot. Um, I think uh, ASEAN and so on will have a much stronger role when reasonable actors come into play at some point. At the moment, the leader of the junta, Men Ong Lai, is someone who does not seem to be reasonable or, or rational or, or even particularly care you know, at all whether Myanmar's economic interests are being served. But there would be others, hopefully, that, that might do that in a, in a longer term. But I'd have to say in the shorter term, I'm not that optimistic, short of the fall of this regime, uh, that there will that interactions will deliver anything really. Yeah, Dan. Microphone. Yeah. I want to ask you, please. I'm Dan Twining. I'm president of the International Republican Institute in Washington. Uh, we have worked in Burma for many years, I guess unsuccessfully, but there's another chapter to be written, as yeah. you uh, know, and will be part of. Sean, could you talk a bit about? the fact uh, that Russia and China in different ways are supporting and enabling the junta. I mean, one takeaway for us not only is that small-D Democrats need to cooperate across the Indo-Pacific for intrinsic reasons, but also because autocrats are cooperating. Yeah. And uh, I think, you know, the sponsors yeah. of the Myanmar junta are an example of that. Yeah, thank you. A absolutely. Dan, great, great question, because that's exactly what we observed. Um, one of the more depressing things... Depressing in so many ways um, was that every every so often we'd come across the global new light of Myanmar, which is the, right. um, as Mike would know, the, the mouthpiece of the regime. And it would be full of stories and pictures and so on of junta officials meeting Russian visitors. And But honestly, the stories were so pathetic. 
Um, they were stories like of a some sort of piddling hedge fund that just had crook written all over it, you know, uh, shaking hands with the pre president and signing some deal, but it was for tiny amounts of money, uh, but the whole red carpet would come out and... Um, but you know that that was sort of the trivial and pathetic end. But but then uh, lots of military stuff. Um, very the only visit, I think this is still right. The only visit Min Ong Lai, the head of the Junta, has made has been to Russia. He's made a couple of them, and likewise, it's, it's just a source of contempt. I'm afraid for someone like me. Um, you know, he tour tractor factories in in some far eastern province of Russia, and and you just think like what? Like tractor factories, is this like 1932 or... Um, and, uh, and, and it would be celebrated, you know, that this was a Myanmar, the future of Myanmar agriculture. There'd be a picture of a Russian truck and, yeah, it was just, just awful. Um, yeah, so the, but the whole Russian thing was really strong. Um, and, and also some of the most awful things we had to see was on Armed Forces Day and so on, the, the Russian helicopters and all that flying over over the top, and they deliberately used to buzz the prison because Su Chi was there and to send a message to her. But, yeah, uh, but the whole Russian thing is, is just terrible. At a personal level, they're the ones who hacked into my computer and pulled everything off and, and all that. Um, China's role also, I think, is... Uh, one of the things I've, I'm at pains in the future, actually, to push back on a little bit is that there's a bit of an, a trope around that uh, Su Chi was, was pro-China, which is, which is not true. And one of the things I, I hope to talk about you know, in, in public in the months ahead, um, is just some, the great success that her government had on pushing back on the BRI, um, in particular this big deep sea project called Jiaopu, $10 billion. They actually negotiated down to a $1 billion project, removed the great risk of Hamban Toda, the, the debt default risk, all that was actually removed in the negotiations. Um, so where I'm going on this is just to say that there were very senior people in China who were really angry at the NLD government. There was also an interesting visit to Myanmar, very senior Chinese officials in the week before the coup. Uh, there's, a, there's a whole... Uh, a, I, I have no firm facts on this, but there's, a, there's just an interesting element that I think probably needs to be explored on, on that front. But, yeah, I, I think the whole way in which Myanmar has sought refuge amongst the two major authoritarian powers is, yeah, more than a little worrying. And I suspect we'll hear more in the months and years ahead, Dan, about... Authority, these authoritarian powers, not just cooperating in visible sort of geopolitical and diplomatic ways, but actually in coordinating attacks or assaults on democratic actors and supporters of civil society and accountability, because it's very inconvenient if you're trying to create a sphere of influence or negotiate um, uh, access or agreements um, on terms that are favorable for you and not the other side. Did I see another? Yeah. Thank you so much for being here and for your brave remarks. I'm Jake Schlesinger with the United States Japan Foundation. Um, and I, a lot of the discussions that we've had in the Sunnylands Initiative the last couple of days have been about the importance of putting universal values, human rights, into foreign aid policies of democracies in the region um, and support doing more to support civil society directly rather than going to governments. I'm wondering if you feel as if that had been a bigger part of foreign aid in the region before the coup that it might have made a difference, or if there was more unity around that as a foreign aid policy afterwards, that that also could have perhaps softened or undone some of what's happened. So it's interesting. I, I don't think anything of any of the external actors in a positive way could have stopped the coup. I think there was an internal dynamic there. And likewise, I think for Burma, 
any sort of solution is going to be internally generated as well. So, so that, that's the first thing. But um, I think there is a bit of a point, because one of the interesting things has been, and one of the things I've been concerned about, particularly since being released, is where are my friends? Are they safe and all that? And it's interesting, the ones who had the ties at that sort of grassroots level were able to be shifted out. And again, I think that's somewhere where the US can actually get a lot of congratulations on. Um, its ability to get people out is really very extensive and, and welcome. But um, yeah, so it certainly made a difference on that front. Likewise, the extent to which there's anything going on at the moment, it's at those levels and through those linkages. All the top level linkages are gone, but there are some ones at the sort of subterranean level that are still actually yielding some dividends now. Um, you, you made an important point just now, which is that the coup happened for almost entirely internal reasons. When Uten Sen emerged and opening began, a lot of scholars and diplomats tried to explain it in terms of geopolitics, you know, too much dependence on China. I spent time in Myanmar uh, shortly after he came to power and, and got to meet with him and with Dalan Suchi. I, I initially thought it was geopolitics and external factors too, and I came away thinking, no, it was very much personalities. Yeah. Uten Sen, and particularly his wife, yeah. who uh, is not corrupt, yeah. <laughs> like Tan Shui's wife and others. Yeah. So do you think that when change comes in Myanmar, it will be because of a, a different personality? It's going to be that kind of thing? Or are there levers that can be, that can be um, thought about from the outside? Yeah. I mean, e everything is so personalized. Right? So I think that that's exactly the, that observation is right. Um, so it'll be just some sort of dynamic on that. I mean, it's one of those things where, you know, Literally 90% of the population, including the overwhelming majority of police and prison guards and all that, hate this regime. I mean, they have, they have no legitimacy. And I think they've even stopped trying now, to be honest. Um, so, so they're only in place because of personal dynamics. And um, it's a great disappointment to me, actually, to... Uh, so well, here's a, a little bit of areas that I might have thought have had an impact before, but which I've been disavowed of this, this wishful thinking, which is I thought the business tycoons would have, a, have had a stronger role uh, because they've lost hundreds of millions of dollars uh, through this coup and many of them had you know, been reaching out, there was huge profits being made, the whole economy was modernising and, and reaching out and all that, bang, gone. You know, and, and these guys would have lost literally hundreds of millions and I, I remember I had a conversation with, with Dorsu about it in the, in, the, in the court where I said to her, I couldn't understand why we weren't he hearing anything from them, and, and her view was quite dismissive. She actually said, oh, Sean, I don't think they ever had any, any backbone, was, was her comment. Um, but, yeah, certainly it sort of, I must admit, undermined my faith at, at that uh, angle. But, um, yeah, but, but I'm sure it, it's going to be about personal dynamics mm. in the end because it's really just a court sitting there atop, and it'll be developments in that court in the end, or a greater military victory, I think, between the government and the, and the NUG, the the government in exile sort of thing, that, that'll determine things. So, so the, at the end of this coup, whenever that comes, the return of democracy, whenever that comes, it's going to be internal. You could look at other cases like Korea and Philippines and Taiwan and argue that was also primarily internal, of course. But one thing I'm hearing from you is that when outside democracies, you mentioned specifically the United States, when outside democracies are focused on and are paying attention to and are helping get out um, democracy actors within the system, that matters, yeah. in your case and in others. And we're yeah. going to talk about that. We had quite a bit yeah. of discussion about how not only the United States, but Japan and others can begin building yeah. um, a framework to do that. Yeah. 
Um, that does seem to matter in Absolutely. the near term. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and that makes me think of another really important point. Just about all the reformers, whether it be democracy or for economic reform and so on, all of them had some exposure to other countries. Mm. So even though it's an internal dynamic and, and, that, and that's what they have to work with and to some extent got wrong and, and people like me got wrong and so on, but, but yeah, they're all, all of them, I, I could say, uh, came from programs, uh, linkages with Australia, with America, with Japan, with uh, Singapore, with Indonesia, um, you name it. Th that was a common denominator among the reforming people. So, yeah, I think it really matters a lot. And you're writing a book? I am writing a book, yep. It's Not right just now, of course. Time. You have to get back to it. But, <laughs> That's um, right. Tomorrow morning, I'm back. It will be out. Your publisher is at Penguin One and Primes for Christmas. I'm told it's a Christmas book, which sounds unlikely to me, but apparently it is. <laughs> okay. Well, good luck on it. Thanks. Uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks for your courage, for your commitment to the people of Myanmar, which is unflagging, and we've been really privileged to have you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I, I, I'd like to invite at this point um, uh, some of the uh, participants in our Sunnylands Initiative Dialogue to join me up here. Ambassador Yukio Takasu from Japan. Um, Takasu Taishi. Yeah, please. <laughs> you get to come up to the tall chair. Um, Ambassador Takasu um, is uh, a, yes, um, wherever you like, retired diplomat. He served as um, Japan's permanent representative to the UN um, and has been one of the most important um, thought leaders in um, bringing changes to how Japan approaches official development assistance um, with more of an emphasis on um, universal values um, and, um, and putting um, money and diplomatic support behind people who um, make this region what former Prime Minister Abe calls a free and open uh, Indo-Pacific. And we'll hear more about that from Ambassador Takasu. Um, Dr. Sukjong Lee. Um, is the President Emeritus, Senior Fellow and Professor of Public Administration at Sung Yongguan University, head of the East Asia Institute um, in uh, Korea, has been one of the leading voices on um, the role that Korea can play in partnership with other democracies, um, has been a very important advisor to the current uh, Yoon government, um, which, as I said, is hosting the Summit for Democracies and is putting real um, uh, prioritization and funding behind governance and democracy. And finally, uh, uh, very delighted to have us uh, joined by Dr. Henry Ivarachure, who is Deputy Director of Strategic Engage Engagement at the Australia Pacific Security College in the Crawford School of Public Policy at ANU. Uh, for Papua New Guinea, was a key figure in the Pacific Island Forum Secretariat. Um, and um, uh, together with George Carter and others, uh, this round helped us really expand our focus to include the Pacific Islands. So um, I'll ask a few rounds of questions, try to share with the audience some of the key themes and takeaways from our um, Sunnylands Initiative uh, meeting. Um, the full uh, report and statement will be out tomorrow. Uh, right, guys? <laughs> Looking at my team. On the U.S. Studies Center website and the National Endowment for Democracy, we'll all be tweeting it. Let me start with sort of the basics. Start with you, uh, Yukio, and go down the line. Um, so I'm a Japan scholar originally, worked in the... Liberal Democratic Party, um, uh, went to Tokyo University. Um, in the 80s and 90s, Japan did not talk about <laughs> universal values or free and open Indo-Pacific. Um, something big changed. Um, and maybe you can tell the audience um, how, from a Japanese perspective, um, 
this came to be such a priority uh, for Abe and now the Kishida government, but on a bipartisan and multipartisan basis within the Diet now, your caucus of Diet members includes all the major parties. So maybe you can explain to us how you did that, <laughs> together with many, many others. We had, thank you very much. My name is uh, Yukio Takasu. I'm uh, to be panel here. Um, just want to say something about uh, change of Japanese attitudes in terms of universal value last uh, 10 years or so, and most dramatically, I think, last few months, uh, to be honest. Uh, of course, partly uh, due to the geographical, I mean, the geopolitical issue, uh, rising authoritarianism and deterioration of value, or democratic values last 15, 16 years, Asia and the Pacific is very noticeable. So in light of that, the free and open in the Pacific is a kind of norm that we should pursue, not only in terms of security, but also economic security, connectivity, but also universal values. Because universal value like freedom, and choice, freedom to choose the way how you organize life. That's a basic element, whatever you call it, uh, universal, you know, human being, this aspiration, every individual must have a right to choose. And uh, the, that is uh, being threatened and uh, being eroded. So therefore, that element of not only economic security and the defense capabilities, but also these uh, universal values, which are foundation of stable and peaceful society, uh, is a very, very important element. That is a recognition of uh, late Prime Minister Abe, and he came up with proposal of the open in the Pacific. But since then, in fact, emphasis has been mainly economic uh, security and also connectivity. Also, some to some extent, security because of China and also North Korea. But what I say the last six months, <laughs> dramatic change. Because Mr. Kishida, Prime Minister Kishida, uh, is slightly different from Gao. He is not so hawkish as, uh, you know, Abisan, but he inherited uh, because the situation changed surrounding Japan, not only Japan, but also. Northeast Asia and in the Pacific Ocean, particularly in the first segment of pillar of free and in the Pacific. Uh, in the Pacific, in other words, in terms of defense capability, as you may know, Japan has dramatically increased, decided to increase defense expenditures, and up to this, uh, uh, and up to now, Japan has uh, maintained, as you know, that uh, you know this minimize this defense expenditure to allow economic and other expenditures. So therefore, kept 1% of the GDP for defense. Now decided to put 2%, same level as NATO countries. That's very clear differences. And economic security also is the area, but supply chain and other things. This is a major issue. But what was the really weak point of free and deep Pacific was the universal values there. It was not really kind of slogan, but no substance there. And the last meeting of Saniland that took place in Japan last August, and we are on a, I mean, a Japanese partner. By the way, I'm uh, chairing uh, the study group or called the Democracy for Future uh, by Japan International Exchange Center, and I'm chairing that group. In that capacity, uh, a Japanese host uh, hosted the second retreat. This is the third one. And there uh, we discussed that some of the action point on the basis of what I have been involving very actively uh, last six months or so. Our first one is the raise profile of protecting universal value and the national security strategy and developing cooperation charter. Because it is fortunate this is a, this is a time to change or amend 
national security strategy in the light of new environment, security environment. So on top of this uh, defense capability and the enhancement of uh, you know, this alliance and so on and so, the national security strategy 2022, which was adopted by cabinet in December last year, include the, one of the national interests of Japan is to safeguard universal values such as freedom, human rights, and rule of law, and rule based on international order. And in that way, I mean, in that uh, statement, there is a paragraph, very strong paragraph. I love it very actively. I'm very happy with this one. That uh, Japan should become model of international community to support universal values and use ODA as a flexibly strategically to promote that concept. And the universal value is human right was not included in area national security strategy in 2013. The situation changed. Therefore, there is a very strong paragraph commitment of safeguarding human rights and raise a voice uh, when this universal value of human rights is violated. So how it will be translated into this commitment to action? That is what I'm working on this one. And this week, later this week, there will be devised ODA charter but to be announced by Japanese government. That's be approved officially in May. But I'm hoping that this commitment in national security strategy will be translated into ODA charter. And on the basis of that, uh, last week in Tokyo, we organized uh, the high level event on the same subject because uh, there will be G8, G7 summit in Tokyo. Uh, sorry, Hiroshima in this May. And there will be extended summit with G7 there including not only G7, but also Global South leaders. And the, our group has submitted uh, the kind of recommendation to be included in, in that uh, you know, statement, particularly emphasizing universal values. Because nobody's challenging the importance of rule-based order, meaning that don't use status quo, don't change international recognized border by force. That's everybody understands. But I'm just afraid that because of that, you know, emphasis, you are not emphasizing equally these universal values. This is something that we have to continuously. Thank you. So, it, it, and she, Prime Minister Kishida himself is quite, and throughout his career, has been quite committed to and he, interested he, in this, He has right? been a supporter of yeah. uh, our study group before and he became Prime Minister. One of the things, we, to be clear to the audience, we explored in our discussions was that um, Japan, Korea, other countries are, are stepping forward in ways we haven't seen before to shore up uh, democratic resilience in the region, but we all do it a bit differently. So the United States or Canada, to a large extent Australia, when providing uh, governance and democracy assistance from the National Endowment for Democracy or International Republican Institute, will often or almost always fund directly to civil society groups. J Japan still largely tries to, and Korea uh, to a significant extent, still tries to get host government, um, host government approval but that's possibly shifting as well in Japan? Yes. Uh, you know, of course, uh, I'm very happy to talk about that yeah, subject too. Because uh, there are many things we can do. But particularly, I think, weakness for Japanese, uh, you know, the ODA and other things, is that it's very strictly to basis government to government area. In other words, Japan has slightly different... Uh, position in terms of the developing cooperation from the United States and others, in the sense that because of history in the Second World War, Japan will respect priority of uh, other countries. Mm. We will not uh, suggest uh, universal values important or whatever. Mm. We wait for the request from other countries, Myanmar, Afghanistan, Thailand, Cambodia. And then 
respect your priority and support it. See, that, that, that has been. But right now, we discussed Myanmar, we discussed, and then probably, you know, Cambodia, Afghanistan, Thailand. These are countries that have been receiving largest amount of Japanese ODA. And what happens? What is impact? Mm -hmm. What did it cause? Mm -hmm. You see? It's clear there is a limitation that you wait for the request, although we don't want to impose them. So therefore, that attitude has limited support of civil society in the media. This is areas weakness. How to create support for this one? We need to create a new mechanism. That is what uh, we have launched. I mean, my group has launched in the Pacific uh, platform for universal values, consisting of Japanese CSO. And uh, we created the steering committee of this one. Part of the activities, we want to work together uh, with uh, CSO and counterpart in our country without going to government to government. Yeah. Thank you. Civil, CSO, I'll interpret ac acronyms just in case people needed the civil society organizations. So um, earlier, Sean mentioned that within Myanmar, Indonesia is the model. That's certainly what I heard when I was in Myanmar. Um, but in other places like Cambodia, the model is Korea mm -hmm. um, for democratization. Um, the military is still respected, and the economy is strong. That's a pretty good outcome if you're a country where the military has a big political role and you're thinking about what democratization might, might result in. So Korea is a powerful example for much of the region, but has been relatively silent until the new Yoon government, which is really embracing democracy as a theme and committing real money. Can you tell us more about the dynamic and the debate and where this is going? I just retired from Sandiman University last February. Uh, let me uh, explain. Yeah, is it one? Yes. Yes. Uh, well, Korea has a strong presidential system. So, which party and which president, how president is thinking, is very important in setting up the course of foreign policy. Um, Usually, conventionally, uh, the liberals, we call progressives in Korea, the previous government, they always emphasize more um, the, uh, the inter-Korean relationships, very important. And of course, uh, the alliance with the USA is also important as well. And uh, as a leftist, of course, uh, they value the um, labor issues and minority issues and so forth. However, they don't think about democracy from the international contribution. However, the conservative force and, and now the present Yoon government got elected May of last year, and they began to approach democracy from the international contribution. And he is a very unusual president because from the inaugural speech, he talked about individual freedom much. And uh, we were counted how many. <laughs> it's very un he's delivering very unusual uh, statements from co compared to past presidents. So um, I think he has been talking about universal values, very important. I'm going to reflect those values in South Korea's foreign policy. When he say universal values, typically he uses three words, freedom and uh, human rights and rule of law. Okay? Uh, so uh, in the September last year, he delivered his speech, Freedom and Solidarity, in United Nations General Assembly. And if you read his speech, uh, you can understand his philosophy of universal values. He was saying uh, people cannot 
be really free, just simply liberated from serfdom. People, individuals, have, can enjoy freedom when they are liberated from want. So want, such as poverty, and uh, a decent life, and enjoy the cultural activities and health. So at that uh, UN uh, General Assembly uh, speech, he promised to donate the money for the global health and the green ODA and so forth. So uh, I think uh, his way of thinking is very strongly resonated in his team in president office. I think his team is leading foreign policy uh, rather than foreign ministry. <laughs> and at the end of last year, uh, December 20, uh, last year, uh, South Korean government uh, has delivered South Korea's Indo-Pacific strategy. And again here, he emphasized the, the universal values, the human rights and freedom as the basic things for the sustainable peace and prosperity in Indo-Pacific. Actually, when his approach was announced, there was a concern from the foreign policy circle in South Korea. Some would say that, well, value diplomacy is something that only the strong power like America can do, not middle power like South Korea. Mm. And we have the concern about national interests, right? So um, democracy as an idea versus security and economic trade as a real interest, there was a debate like that. But finally, I think we compromised actually promoting democracy and universal values is good for national interest and also good for the regional interest, like uh, more sustainable peace and, and prosperity. So uh, I guess uh, um, uh, we'll see, uh, as Mike has mentioned, we hosted the uh, uh, Summit for Democracy at the Indo-Pacific Regional Meeting last week, and I was attending uh, the opening session, um, and our president came, and he, he promised, as Mike has mentioned, uh, he's going to offer 100 million democracy assistance for aid, and also he's going to create 1.5 in the Pacific Forum on News. So we're going to see uh, you know, how this promise will be delivered in the uh, near future. Thank you. Henry, um, you uh, and uh, uh, your, your colleagues really helped uh, illuminate for us the important role that the Pacific Island Forum plays in, um, well, committing governments to cooperate on, 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 on election monitoring and democratic uh, governance, um, but also creating a, a framework so that um, uh, the Pacific Island in, a, in its own regional context is advancing this. It's been on again, off again. The, the, the PIF uh, Secretariat has met on this, sometimes has not. Uh, tell us a bit more about the Bikatawa um, uh, uh, statement in 2000 and subsequent efforts to create within the PIF a regional framework for uh, advancing governance and democracy. Thanks, Mike. Um, I used to work for the forum from 2006 to 2012, and much of my work was around ele observing elections under the Picatawa framework. The Picatawa basically um, is the forum's democracy framework, a rule of law, respect for rights and all that. Um, it's now been advanced to the 2050 strategy for the Blue Pacific continent. And so sometimes there's this Indo-Pacific narrative and there's this Blue Pacific narrative. 
but the commonality is democracy, uh, rule, of, rule of law, human rights, and things like that. Um, the important thing to remember here is that those regional preferences, like the Bigger Tower and the 2050 strategy on democracy, uh, set the framework. Eh? But there is a policy around non-interference, where Forum Island members cannot interfere in the affairs of the other state. But principles are supposed to be uh, implemented, and they are not held accountable to it because of this uh, uh, reference to non-interference. Um, so, you know, you're talking about a region that is very diverse. You're looking at Papua New Guinea, where I come from, which is the largest, and you're transcending all the way down to Nauru, maybe Papua New Guinea with about 11 million people, and you track all the way down to, uh, say, Nauru with 10,000 people. So there's a huge uh, diversity. Um, and our democracy is in this part of the region is, 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 was given to us as governments became independent. But we have to, um, in my view, we have to invest in democracy. We have to own democracy. We've got to turn it into the way it fits into our way of life. And that's the challenge that I think Pacific states are going through. We've experienced, you know, um, a diverse range of challenges from Fiji with its coups in 1978 and then returning to democracy. We have uh, issues in PNG, particularly about the elections. And I think the way we see election, uh, democracy is more centered around elections. Uh, that's, but they, it's more than just elections. And that's what uh, governments need to do. They need to invest in democracy. And, and when I say invest, it doesn't mean budgeting. So you budget for an election. You budget for the legislature. You budget for the oversight and integrity institutions. That's basically budgeting to make them function. But when I say invest, is basically governments need to take ownership of democracy, democracy values, and make it part of everyday life. Now, in P when I say that, we mean in Papua New Guinea and the Pacific, women's representation is very small. So we need to invest in increasing the voice of women in decision-making at that level. Uh, it's primarily dominated by male men. We need to reverse that uh, attitude or that trend across the Pacific. And it can only work if we take that full responsibility to invest in our democracy. I think the way it is tracking at this point in time is that external actors like Australia, New Zealand, United States, Japan, and all that invest in our democracy. That's great, but it perhaps creates a dependency uh, uh, trend. I think we need to reverse that way we are working to make sure that the investment tends to an investment of changing the, the dynamics, changing the mindsets, making sure that we, and we have, I mean, in, in, in parts of the Pacific, we've actually done the reforms, like Tonga, for example, after 135 years of um, like a feudalistic arrangement has now reformed its 
democracy to where people are elected. And those kind of investments need to continue, and those areas for investments. But you have to do those investments in Talanoa, in conversation with Pacific Islanders, eh, to see what they really need. Uh, so, you know, the regional references are fine, but the regional references must be applied at the national level. And that's the decision of our political leaders to invest in our democracy. So I'll, I'll stop in there in case other people might ask interesting questions about the Pacific, but I want to say that it's a fairly large ocean. And there's, uh, <laughs> if you look at the Forum Island countries, there are 14 of them. So I can't really describe right. each one of them, but if you ask questions around each one of them, I can be able to uh, try to address it. Thanks, Excellent. Mark. Thank you. I, I might um, invite one or two or three of the participants who are on the floor to add a bit more um, uh, color and um, geographical completeness to our discussion. Um, we had, uh, we've, we've talked about Northeast Asia, Pacific Islands. We had um, some prominent thought leaders from Southeast Asia. I might invite uh, Conchita. Uh, Gonzalez, former uh, Supreme Court, Associate Supreme Court Justice and the Ombudsman for the Philippines, um, for your perspective, we talked a bit about um, uh, the, the PIF, we talked a bit about uh, support for universal values. M maybe you can tell us a bit about how things look in the Philippines with the new government. Um, ASEAN, and might turn to Marty Nadalgawa too, ASEAN has within it a human rights commission, it has, you know, the ASEAN Charter is a perfect mix of non-interference in internal affairs and universal values. It's both comfortable with both uh, contradictions in the Charter. But give us your view um, uh, on, on these issues. A pleasant to everyone. We thought that after the People Power Revolution in 1986, where the Filipino people drove away Ferdinand Marcos, the best, the greatest plunderer, we thought that democracy would be reborn in its pristine state. Unfortunately, we had a, was this autocratic president whose term expired last June, and we have been he has been replaced by the scion of the plunderer president. <laughs> so he is not as uh, smart as his president, but uh, by all indications, at least he listens to the advice of his advisors, because we don't give him A for intelligence. We don't have give him B for competence. But as I said, to his credit, he listens to his advisors. Now, uh, by all indications, he's veering away from the policy of his predecessor, uh, that means Duterte, who was an authoritarian, who violated human rights, which include extrajudicial killings, enforced disappearances, and um, other kinds of human rights violations. So we are hopeful, we are um, optimistic that the present president uh, will uh, try to make up for his father's uh, legacy, as in fact he said he, is going, he was going to run for president because he wanted to protect his family. By protect, probably, he wanted to give, you know, a new light on his bad record. But uh, it is sad to note that uh, most of these countries in ASEAN do not seem to have consensus as far as approaching challenges are concerned. For example, there is no consensus with respect to the approach to the Myanmar civil war 
and to the aggressive Chinese who unfortunately does not recognize the arbitral tribunal which ruled in favor of the Philippines. But to the credit of the Americans, to the Australians, to the Japanese, and some others who are sympathetic to us, uh, the uh, aggressiveness of China appears to have been curbed because they are always uh, hitting the Americans for trying to come up with uh, joint military exercises. But the America has a basis in coming up with joint military exercises because it has uh, treaties with the Philippines and uh, America is ready to help the Philippines because the Philippines is a poor country, unfortunately. It's not only poor, it has weak military equipment. But uh, with America's uh, help, thanks to the Americans, we are trying to deter China from being too aggressive. Uh, to Again, to the credit of uh, the Philippine ambassador to the United States, who is related to the president, um, he has been uh, instrumental in trying to get a new policy as far as U.S.-Philippine relations are concerned. Thank you very, very much. You know, it's interesting. One, one of the key themes that came throughout our discussions that will be reflected in our uh, statement uh, that comes up tomorrow is um, that this is a democracy is a process. There are setbacks. There are steps forward. As we surveyed the region, um, I think we, we confirmed what Freedom House, represented here by Anna, um, uh, uh, found in its current report, which is there's been a slowing of the decline of freedom in the world. But in Asia... Actually, the momentum is more positive than not, I think is a fair way to summarize this year's report. You can see why with the case of the Philippines, with Tonga and Fiji, with Timor-Leste, but you can also see the challenges, obviously, with Myanmar uh, and other parts. And I think that sense that this is um, democracy is not on autopilot <laughs> lends some urgency to discussions about what democracies in the region can do in their own ways to keep the momentum going forward, recognizing it's going to go forward and backward over time. Marty, Marty Nalagawa is Foreign Minister of Indonesia um, and um, uh, at, at a really uh, important time in Indonesian leadership, um, certainly um, in the founding of the Bali Democracy Forum. Um, I imagine you were quite instrumental in the new um, ASEAN Charter, Human Rights Commission. Um, but ASEAN's really quite, um, as, as uh, Kachita said, quite stuck right now because of the geopolitics and the development in Myanmar. But what can you tell us about the the trajectory and what might be possible? Well, I must say that um, I listen extremely, as all of us did, I'm sure, uh, very attentively to what Professor Sean Turner had shared with us earlier. Uh, two, two things that he had said that I thought was of uh, particular resonance uh, to me. Uh, one was when he said, uh, among, if I'm not mistaken, in recalling uh, how at one time uh, Indonesia the DNI, uh, the Indonesian Armed Forces, was a model uh, for, uh, in Myanmar, uh, a, a path to pursue, to follow. And as well, the second point he had said about how the developments in Myanmar was uh, principally driven by internal dynamic. Uh, if I was to relate that to Indonesia's own uh, transformative experience, uh, when we went through the, the changes in 1998 onwards, uh, and since then, uh, I'm not sure what's going on at the moment, 
it has always been our perennial concern how to synergize the national and the regional dynamic. When Indonesia transformed as a, as a, uh, as a relatively more democratic nation post-1998, we were keenly aware that the sustainability of our efforts, of our transformation, would require a region that is conducive uh, to uh, democratic norms and, and principle. Uh, that is why, uh, despite the fact that some, many actually, civil society organizations in Indonesia had said at the time that we should concentrate on our own internal reform, but we chose instead concurrently to develop the region's own democratic architecture to the ASEAN political security community, et cetera, et cetera, to make sure that the regional development, regional dynamics, and the national dynamics go hand in hand. And among others, this implies uh, a lot of low-level, I mean low-key, informal, hand-holding, pushing and prodding, mutual encouragement to fellow democracies to, pursue, to be persistent and to have resilience and to have the courage to press on with their efforts. And, and I remember many a moment when, when, when Myanmar was in a very uh, delicate stage when we had to really not only push and prod, but also encourage them to continue to press on. Uh, perhaps, and of course, we have all the various wherewithal in ASEAN, ASEAN Human Rights Declaration, ASEAN Intergovernmental Commission on Human Rights, et cetera, et cetera. But those things, as uh, our colleague has said just now, requires investment of efforts. These are mere potentials. We have the capacities, but I'm afraid over the past uh, five, eight years, perhaps, ASEAN has allowed these capacities to become uh, in abeyance. They have become somewhat dormant. There hasn't been sufficient state practice to encourage one another to continue to press on uh, with the, in their efforts. And as a result, I'm not completely surprised uh, that we are seeing the backsliding not only in, in Myanmar, most clearly, but in the rest of ASEAN member states as well, because of this uh, lack of leadership uh, and state practice. But uh, at least the wherewithal is there, the, all the, the paraphernalia for democratic reform is there, but I'm a little bit uh, uh, a little bit despondent that uh, now we are back to almost square one, uh, as if we are back to those days when uh, the notion of the region and the national level is deemed to be separate, as if there is a very, it's either you are, the regional the, uh, dynamics is separate from the internal one. And I think this is a very uh, 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 unfortunate situation. And... Um, Given the prognosis uh, described just now, I wonder how a change can be effected uh, in Myanmar. Mm. Uh, because uh, what I'm hearing now from ASEAN is simply expression of exasperation, uh, of uh, concern, of disappointment, of, of protest in their best moments. But emotion is not policy. Uh, policy makers need to construct concrete policies, and I'm not sure where, where uh, the, uh, the changes are to, to happen. If I, was, if I have a, an opportunity to ask anyone, including Professor Turner, is I was, I'm wondering uh, to what extent would an ASEAN opening up publicly and even formally connecting with the NUG, uh, 
would that be of consequence to the junta? Not simply to leave the seat vacant, because for them isolation is their comfort zone, but to actually have the NUG occupy that vacant seat. And I'm wondering whether that would be sufficiently uh, disruptive for the junta to, to realize that their intransigence is not without cost. Sean, are you able to answer that? And then, Sok Chong, and then we'll open it for your questions. Um, is I, your I think precisely that would be the, um, would be the, the thing that really pushed things forward. Um, uh, and I would imagine that uh, for the people who are sort of struggling against the regime, and all their Christmases would come at once, I think, if that was, <laughs> if that was to happen. Well, well put. Because when Mike has asked about the South Korean model, mm. uh, South Korean model of a modernization is something like that. Economic development preceded, and then political liberalization, democratization followed. I think our sequence was like that. Uh, we had a military coup in 1961. Uh, however, Park Chung-hee, even though he was an uh, authoritarian leader, uh, he uh, allowed economic bureaucracy independent, and he did not allow his former military colleagues, generals, to take any economic interest in the uh, economic development of South Korea. So and during the authoritarian period, he's on the second stage from the 1973 Yushin system, um, uh, there was a lot of debate. Uh, there was a lot of protest, labor movement, and student movement, and, and all intellectual dissidents. So we paid in a price. Uh, however, it's a, uh, I think uh, our transition in 1987 from authoritarian model to uh, democracy was relatively peaceful and uh, easier because you know, uh, there was a kind of consensus it's time to have a democracy back to our Korean politics. So in that aspect, the Myanmar case is different because there's a packed democratization. The military uh, couldn't you know, go back to Berra quickly. But our case, after, uh, during the uh, Kim Yong-sun government in 19, uh, early 1990s, he very successfully pushed the military back to uh, its barracks. So military is well respected in Korea these days. Yes. Important precedent. Now, the floor is open. Um, you can direct your questions to members of the panel or just generally. The gentleman in the back. Thank you. Firstly, I would like to say thank you for Sunnyfield Institute to organize this. My name is Thomas. I'm born in Burma. I'm Burmese, live in Australia. And thank you for everyone. And I greatly learn a lot of different experience and learning from their every single change agent and as our Peter Truka say for knowledge leader and every single country is different and we all come with a different culture, different background and things like that. I would like to ask a question to all panel members including Sean as well. Uh, Burma as we all know at one point, Burma was in one of the best countries in Southeast Asia. But look at where they are now. Look at where we are now. By myself, I haven't been back to Burma for over 30 years. The reason I'm saying is, yes, Japan, they used to act very reactive strategy in the past. If they never act, they don't involve with this because they respect the privacy. But now, I learned that they start changing to the proactive manner. 
And with the Korean, they are change in their country is steadily gradually. And we, on the other hand, like similar to Indonesia, military are government. Military is not institution. Military are government. Even though Sean and Aung San Suu Kyi government were there, there was a parallel government in Burma. A lot of people and a lot of international community do not really seem to understand it. The reason I can say is two parallel government. How are you going to override each other? You can't. You can't make the decision. The point I would like to make right now is some people might say aggressive policy. Some people might say intervene other people's business. Some people might say you just try to look at the other people's backyard. Think about it. Burma is in the very low of the low of the low country. If we talk about democracy, if we talk about human rights, can we and how type of strategy and model are we going to use to engage with Burma? Because I always say, if you are Holyfield boxer, Holyfield next boxer, yeah, when you go and compete with the Mike Tyson, if you knew your opponent can beat your ear, yes, I'm not encouraging, I'm not suggesting you to beat your opponent, but you need to know who you are dealing with. So, Tom, are you you asking the panel For, whether the international community should be more assertive? That's correct. Okay, yeah. let's get an answer. That's, a, that's yeah. the thing I would like to make the point, and also like like when we look at it, because I live in Australia, compared to Australia foreign policy and U.S. foreign policy, there's a gap. There's a differences. This is a question I would like to put it to the panel. Right. I would like okay. To, yeah. Um, Thank so, you. is there scope for, and would it be effective for, not just the U.S. You're saying, but for Japan, Korea, others, to be much more, I don't know what the word is, pointed, aggressive, to try to get results in in, in Myanmar. Do you think the Japanese government has the appetite or the confidence that that would work? Sanction against uh, government uh, by stopping the new assistance program, but the question is that uh, is not it's very clear. It's not enough, and uh, as we have been the brief today, uh, the external pressure uh, is, has a limit to impact on these uh, leaders, military leaders on this one. However, I think maximum effort should be made by all of us, and there is a, this uh, big debate going on in Japan that uh, this, uh, we should step up much more tougher action uh, against uh, this. Uh, the, not only government, but also business. As you may know, this uh, Japanese business basically by in- encouraged by government, Japan, to invest more because of the democratic time. <laughs> and now, uh, one by one, decided to go, withdraw. But the uh, question is that there are so many Japanese businesses operating there. And uh, they have, in fact, uh, business and human rights is one of the big, big issues everywhere, in Japan, including Japan. And the business people are asking that government has encouraged to go there. But the way the situation changed there, you know, then the government is taking very, very kind of, well, it's your business decision, individual. <laughs> it's not fair here. And this is some area that uh, government is also under getting pressure from Japanese business leaders that this is why I'm talking about the commitment is there, 
national security strategy is saying very clearly on this issue. When there is a serious violation of human rights, Japan sh should take the action. The question is when and how. Yeah. And this is something that I think uh, we should continue to put pressure. It is, it is um, I think, worth noting that the Japanese government in response, and other governments, uh, in response to Ukraine, um, made economic divestments or stopped investment that was quite costly and painful um, in response to uh, an action on the other side of the world. So the appetite for doing these things with economic tools, even if it hurts, I think that appetite is growing. Sean, I think when we met 20 years ago, people were talking about R2P, right to protect, an actual military intervention in Myanmar. My sense is that has fallen off. People don't talk about that after Iraq and after you know Afghanistan and the complexity of military operations. That's sort of off, uh, barring some you know quite extreme scenario. Um, we have time for another question or two. Yes, ma'am, right by the door there. Hi, my name is Bonnie Simons-Brown, and I'm a journalist with the ABC. I wanted to thank Ms. Papua Morales for your very assessment of Marcos Jr.'s presidency. Um, I made a documentary about that election last year for the ABC, and one thing I haven't heard discussed tonight is misinformation and disinformation and the role that that is playing in compromising democracy. Um, that was a democratic election that was won on a landslide of misinformation and disinformation. So I'm curious to know whether you're discussing that, the influence of that on democracy. I think it's so important that we think about how, not just discuss its influence in these forums, but we need to talk to ordinary people about misinformation and disinformation and ensuring that they're making choices based on fact. It's a great question. We spent quite a bit of time on it. I think it's fair to say, and I'll ask others to, to weigh in, I think it's fair to say there is a consensus that everywhere this is a problem. In the United States, in Australia, um, Taiwan is under a major uh, onslaught of misinformation uh, right now. So it's a, it's a pretty universal problem. It hits different systems with different velocity or levels of damage, but it was a major, uh, major topic. Conchita, would you want to respond, and others? Right. Thank you. Misinformation and disinformation is the defense of those who do not like to be accounted for. And that's the reason why it has propagated even during the time of Duterte and uh, uh, in the months uh, before the election. But uh, unfortunately, Lenny Robredo, who was uh, pitted against Ferdinand Marcos, was demure enough not to mind that because probably she did not realize that the disinformation and misinformation that was being peddled by the Marcos uh, camp uh, uh, cost her her defeat. Now, um, while this disinformation and uh, misinformation uh, was uh, critical in the decision also of the people because they were so gullible in believing that indeed there was a you know, golden opportunity during Ferdinand Marcos Sr.'s time. Uh, we, I was supporting Lenny. We realized that indeed we were so naive in not uh, believing that misinformation and disinformation played a major role in the uh, winning of Ferdinand Marcos. Of course, his election now is being tested because uh, there are three gentlemen who filed a case before the Supreme Court because they doubted uh, the authenticity of the counting by the Comelec 
commission on elections, uh, in light of, uh, among other factors, the speed in which they were able to determine, to count rather, the number of votes allegedly uh, garnered by Ferdinand Marcos Jr. And um, even the Comile Commission on Elections uh, is not forthright in providing the necessary document against which the uh, authenticity of the result of the elections can be gauged. So that's the present status now of this misinformation and disinformation. Although, of course, uh, civil society organizations uh, are trying to uh, come up with several fora to disabuse the mind of the people that any misinformation or disinformation should be received cautiously. Thank you. Um, I, I might ask uh, Bridie Rice, who, join, uh, who joined us and had several um, observations on this, please. Thanks, Mike. Um, I think on the misinformation and disinformation piece for Australia, um, there's a really interesting moment that we're coming for. Uh, in, and I think the Minister for Foreign Affairs, Penny Wong, um, has a little bit of a choice to make. So the Australian government will be releasing a refreshed development policy, the document that will dictate how, where and why we deliver development assistance overseas. And something that has struck me over the last few days here is that the Australian government's development program is a little, is a little outdated, right? Other donors in the region, you hear explicit discussion of democracy promotion, um, defensive advocates, and, and things like digital misinformation and disinformation policies. So I think that there's an opportunity for Australia to really rethink and to build a new development capability around misinformation and disinformation. I don't think you'll see our government out there on the democracy promotion bandwagon, um, perhaps the way that our US allies would like us to be, but that is not to say that this civic space misinformation, digital in particular, capability should not be part of the Australian Development Program, and right now it's not there. So I think the piece um, I would like to see coming out of Australia is a clear articulation of what we're doing on misinformation and disinformation in the region, um, and obviously with the announcement of the Democracy Task Force, I think a few of us are also watching to see what is the offshore piece of that? Mm. Is it just about Australia or is it about our connections to the region as well? So I think we're coming to an inflection point on that in Australia and we'll see movement in the next little while. And I, I might end by just saying we were delighted, those of us who started the Sunnylands Initiative, to hold this third version uh, here in Sydney and at the University of Sydney um, because Australia is such an important, well, such a successful democracy but such an important player in this space in the region um, and because it allowed us to really focus in a way we didn't in the meetings in California and, and Tokyo on uh, the Pacific Islands, which was incredibly important. But also, I have to say, in the seven months that I've been running the U.S. Studies Center, uh, the United States and Australia on intelligence sharing, on defense, on multiple areas, could not be tighter. But I would observe the one area where the two governments have the most difficulty talking to each other is the role of democracy uh, in our foreign policies. And part of it is the way rhetorically both countries approach it is different. Um, but part of it is um, I think both the United States and Australia need to refresh how we think about these issues, as Bridie said. And one thing I hope comes out of this meeting is um, this is not a, uh, an issue that the United States and Australia are thinking about in isolation. There are very important initiatives in the region from Japan, from Korea, from Indonesia and elsewhere. Um, and this is a multiplayer game. <laughs> 
uh, as we deal with these issues. I want to thank Sean Trinnell. I want to thank our panelists. Thank all of you. I'm going to invite Mark Bailey to give a, a closing vote of thanks. Thanks, Mike. Um, yes, I'm Mark Bailey. I'm the chair of the United States Study Centre here at the University of Sydney. And um, thank you, everyone, for joining us here this evening. I know a few of you have been uh, uh, busy over the last couple of days at the actual uh, event. And uh, again, thank you for your participation, willingness to, to travel all the way to Sydney to participate in that. But, but what we've he heard tonight sounds like it's been a very productive couple of days. Um, Mike joined the centre um, less than a year ago now. Actually, I think um, about a year ago we announced his appointment. Um, Mike promptly caught COVID and we kept him here for a few days longer, but um, um, he's been here on the ground for seven months. He not only saw a future um, in which the centre has bolstered the breadth and quality of its research, but also one in which the centre convenes diverse stakeholders for solutions-orientated approach to challenging world problems. And I think we've seen that here over the last couple of days. I said, it's a fantastic event. It's a testament um, to the fact that Mike's compelling vision is already coming to fruition in less than a year that he's been on the ground. Hosting an event like Sunnylands Initiative is an honour and a privilege, and it wouldn't be possible without the National Endowment for Democracy. Thank you for co-leading and contributing the funding to make this possible. I want to thank the University of Sydney and our close friend, Vice-Chancellor Mark Scott, who's had to duck out but will be joining us later at dinner. The university has helped form the centre and they have been our host since inception in 2006. Thank you, uh, the university, for its continued support. Thank you to the USSC and NED teams for bringing together the whole conference, uh, culminating in tonight's event. At the National Endowment for Doc Democracy, special thanks to Dr Lynn Lee and Sasha Chabra. Thanks also to the USSC project team of Jared Monshine. Jared? Um, uh, Janine Pinto, Victoria Cooper, Marie Koch and Samuel Garrett. Uh, it's been a, a great event and we look forward to, um, to the dinner this evening. I think um, you know, just a few closing thoughts. Um, we've heard a lot tonight about, obviously, democracy. Um, over the years that I've been chairing the centre, people have asked me, why did we study the US? Um, and you know, as Mike uh, has alluded to, we, we study to educate Australians about the US to provide a balanced view of the US. But I also, uh, also answer it in some ways a simplistic way. Um, we study the US because we, we can and we want to, not because we have to and must. And I think um, that, in a, in a very trite way maybe, sums up why democracy is so important. People have referred to individual choice and the, and the ability for individuals to choose. And I think from what I've heard this evening, um, that has certainly been very much the, the, the way in which this discussion has been framed, and I thank you for your contributions to that. Um, can I wish you all a wonderful evening? Thank you. Thank you.